Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello everyone and welcome to His Years Were Full of Glory. Last week we ended with the death of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, leaving Edward, her brother, King of Wessex, as Lord of all Anglo-Saxons. Edward's position then is of a completely different order to any previous claiming leadership of all the English. With the removal of Elfwyn, he was undisputed, no other Anglo-Saxon kings claimed competing royalty. From this moment forward, the line of Cherditch was the Royal House of England. Now there's a thing. Edward's final priority was the final submission of the Southern Dane Law, completing the job he and his sister had started. And in this he was to be successful. By the end of 918, Edward was the master of all the lands south of the Humber, including in principle and largely in theory, the Welsh. 
because the two remaining Danish boroughs of Nottingham and Lincoln could see the writing on the wall and knew they had no prospect of resisting an overwhelming English army and again submitted without a fight. However, that focus had a price. The price was Northumbria. While Edward concentrated on the south, Ragnall was back, joining a Viking invasion fleet from Waterford in Ireland. Once again, the target was the northeast of England and the Kingdom of the Scots, and once again, Ragnall came out of the battle as the victor. From there, Ragnall moved south, and by 919 he'd stormed the city and installed himself as the new King of York. While we might see both Danes and Norwegians as Vikings, that may not well be the way they saw it, and there was probably no love lost between them. The takeover of York by Ragnall may have been as bad news to the Danes as the fall of York to the Danes had been to the Northumbrians. Edward was alive to the dangers presented by the threat of the Irish Vikings on the northwest coast of England. The River Mersey gave access to the heart of England and was protected only by the fortress built by Athelflaed at Runcorn. So Edward built a new fortress on the river and repaired the Roman fortress at Manchester. But despite this, a cousin of Ragnald, Citric, arrived from Ireland in 920 with a group of raiders and ravaged an area in the northwest. So Edward moved north that year, building fortresses on the River Trent and ending up at Bakewell in Derbyshire, a key town where different valleys diverge and meet. At Bakewell, Edward brought the parties together in a diplomatic triumph, though some have suggested Edward may have been a little tart. The entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded what happened at Bakewell and indicated how far the reputation and influence of the English had come. In the following passage, he refers to Edward, and Edwulf's sons mean the English ruling family in Bamborough. He was chosen as father and lord by the King of Scots, by Ragnall and Edwulf's sons, and all who dwelt in Northumbria, English, Danes, Norse and others, and the King of Strathclyde, British. So we are close to having a King of all England, but we're still not there. Ragnall died in 921 and Citric was his successor and frankly paid very little heed to Edward's wishes. His coins have no reference to Edward. He never became Edward's man. Each of the kings at Bakewell in 920 had their reasons to become Edward's man in theory. Ragnall wanted recognition for his kingdom. He eldered of Bamber and needed support, sandwiched as he was between the Scots and the Norse. The King of Strathclyde gained support for their claim of ownership of the islands and lands which they'd taken from Northumbria, and the King of Scots gained support against Ragnall and his war-making. And indeed to Edward, all these men promised to respect his territory by becoming his man. Nor is the particularism within the old English kingdoms entirely gone. Edward knew he had to move quickly in 918 to stop the potential growth of Mercian independence, and in 924 indeed, Edward had to crush a rising by Mercians against his rule. Mercians who go as far as to make an alliance with the traditional enemy, the Welsh. As we've said, Northumbria was to remain independent for another 30 years, but while we still don't have one integrated kingdom of England, we do have an England with more power and influence within the island than it's ever had before. Edward died in 924 at the age of 50 and after a reign of a quarter of a century. While we get little impression of the man, we do see a very effective, patient and painstaking war leader and a man prepared to be brutal when needs be. His conquests of the Danish land south of the Humber 
were a model of careful preparation and judicious violence. Once he moved forward a step, he was never forced backwards. And really it took him just eight years, between 812 and 820, to reverse many of the English disasters of the previous half-century. Now then, the succession to Edward was not straightforward. Firstly, a quick reminder of the Anglo-Saxon succession process. Eldest son of the king, without doubt in a pole position, as soon as the lights go out. But it's not a gimme. Any atheling has a claim. As far as being married and producing heirs is concerned, Edward had been a busy lad. He'd married three times and had 13 children, which must have been a challenge for Christmas presents. Or indeed, remembering the names of your children, which honestly I find something of a struggle with three, let alone 13. But there were two frontrunners. Number one was Athelstan, his eldest son by his first marriage, and a young man by now probably 30 years old. This seems like a slam dunk. But Athelstan actually may not have been at an advantage. He had been brought up by Athelflaed and Athelred in Mercia. You have to ask why. Could it be that he was not favoured by his stepmother? Another Athelflaed, by the way. Could it be that he was sent away from the court of the King of the Wessex by the evil stepmother, so that her lovely lad, the 20-year-old Alfward, could become king? We know not. But actually, the clever money may well have been on Alfward succeeding. Because he was in Wessex, he was on the place. And that is why many of the versions of the Anglo-Saxon chronicles tell us that the next king of Wessex was not Athelstan, but Alfward. As it happens, Athelstan's presence in Mercia seems to have actually been a winner rather than a disadvantage. In their desire to retain their voice, the aldermen and thanes of Mercia quickly proclaimed Athelstan their king. The stage was set for a barney, but fortunately, within 16 days, Alfward was dead. Unfortunate for Alfward, obviously. Even then, Athelstan was to find resistance in Wessex, and seems initially to have been seen as an upstart, an outsider from Mercia. There seems to have been a plot in Wessex to blind him and put another son of Edward, Edwin, on the throne. Though effectively confirmed in his kingship, by 925, Edwin was to continue to present a problem for Athelstan. Athelstan was to reign for 15 years and earn himself the title Athelstan the Glorious. And although he wins that title mainly for his military successes, with Athelstan, we're back to a man like his grandfather Alfred, who saw the role of king in a more sophisticated light than simply a war leader. Athelstan can make a claim to overlordship of all Britain, though with a bundle of qualifications and exceptions, of course, but his reign also marks a return at last to the kind of international relationships we've not seen since Offa and Athelwulf. We also have more evidence of a more sophisticated administration, and he follows Alfred's example in developing English law codes. With all the shenanigans surrounding his accession, Athelstan was therefore not crowned in Wessex until September 925, crowned King of the West Saxons at Kingston-on-Thames. Incidentally, they still have the coronation stone in a museum in Kingston, the same stone used to crown Edward the Elder, Athelstan and five more of his predecessors by Jiminy. How exciting is that on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very exciting and 1 being not very exciting at all? I'm at 11. We know just a few personal details about Athelstan. He was flaxen-haired and had a physical energy that he demonstrated throughout his reign. He shows that mixture of intellectual curiosity and religious devotion suitable for a grandson of Alfred. 
he became known as a collector of relics and for inviting foreign scholars to the English court. And maybe those two are one and the same thing. Arf, arf. William of Malmesbury records a few interesting incidents where Athelstan grants pardons to criminals willing to make amends and records publicly his revulsion against the execution of young offenders. Set against this softness, if you will, the Northumbrian analyst of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that in 933, quote, King Athelstan ordered Edwin, his brother, to be drowned at sea. Now this would give us an image just a bit at odds with that softer image. It does look as though this could be a misreading, though. Other annals simply record that Edwin was drowned. But a record from a continental Flemish monastery records Athelstan's gratitude for the burial they gave to Edwin. Quote, Drowned in a storm while escaping from England in a time of commotion. It's a curious episode which suggests that there may have been some kind of failed royal coup. But it doesn't change our picture of Athelstan as not really being the kind of bloke to drown his brother, despite the temptation all those brothers have felt at some time in our lives to do just that. So, we've said that Athelstan's agenda included more than just winning power and influence. But make no mistake about it, winning power and influence was still number one in his life. He was, after all, an Anglo-Saxon king. The prime target, of course, was the Norse kingdom of Northumbria, where the king Citric had never become Edward's man. And so in 926, Athelstan and Citric met at Tamworth. And as the Anglo-Saxon chronicle laconically remarks, Athelstan gave him his sister, we assume in marriage. But this attempt to build relations with Northumbria failed when Citric died just a year later. And the Northumbrians chose Olaf, Citric's stepson, as the successor, and his uncle Guthfrith, another descendant of Ivar the Boneless, came over from Ireland to help him out. Now, for some reason, this seems to have given Athelstan an excuse to invade, which he did. And in what must have been a very short campaign, he drove them both out. Olaf fled to Ireland, and Guthfrith to Constantine II, the King of the Scots. Athelstan saw this as a superb chance to emphasise his supremacy, and in July 927, he arranged a meeting with Constantine, the King of Scots, with the King of Strathclyde, and with the English Lord of Bamborough. And they all met at Emont in Cumbria, which is, incidentally, the traditional border between the defunct county of Westmoreland and Cumbria. There, they all became Athelstan's man and promised to suppress any paganism in their lands. Part of the deal was that Constantine was to bring Guthfrith with him and hand him over, which he absolutely planned to do. But Guthfrith had other ideas and broke out on the way south, got some men together and laid siege to York. But he was doomed to failure and eventually gave himself up of his own accord. Athelstan entertained him for four days and sent him off back to Ireland, where he died in 930, described by an Irish analyst as, quote, a most cruel king. Though from my point of view, his worst crime is in having a name brutally difficult to say. Guthfrith, Guthfrith. From this point to the end of his reign, Athelstan was in direct control of Northumbria. Four years later, he went one step further, bringing together most of the Welsh princes to Hereford, where all agreed a very substantial yearly tribute. And by this time, 
Athelstan could and did style himself Rex Totius Britanniae, King of all Britain. And really, he was actually for once reflecting the truth of it. This is particularly true of the Welsh, oddly, where the relationship seems to have been pretty good, despite the tribute. We have many more charters from Athelstan's reign than his father, and we see the Welsh kings frequently represented at his court. One of them in particular, Howell of Diffed, was clearly heavily influenced by English life and government. At the same time, Athelstan established some boundaries, such as the Wye Valley to form part of the boundary between Wales and Mercia, and also the River Tamar to be the boundary of the British Kingdom of Cornwall. This latter seems to have come about after a campaign in response to a Cornish revolt that saw Athelstan throw the British out of Exeter and re-fortify the city. More importantly, this means that I am guilty of a hideous historical inaccuracy when I said in the Egbert episode that Cornwall had become part of England back in the 9th century. Doubly bad, since I have made the same mistake second time round to boot. I am gutted, and I apologise to Cornishmen everywhere. I had done a bit more research on it, and it looks as though Cornwall was referred to as a kind of client territory rather than a shire and an integrated part of England as late as Athelred the Unready's time in 1016. Basically, until William the Conqueror, Cornwall seems to have a different status. Any Cornishmen out there, feel free to comment. Anywho, making the King of All Britain claim stick was not without its challenges, and it was to last only six years before challenged by Constantine though we don't know exactly how. But on May the 28th, 934, Athelstan held a great court, a great council, and put together a land and naval force and moved north into Scotland. Constantine had no support from his potential allies from Strathclyde or Ireland and doesn't appear this time to have offered any resistance at all, so Athelstan's army was free to ravage the kingdom, while his navy ravaged the coast right up to the far northeast of Scotland. Constantine appears to be a man capable of harbouring a grudge, though, and Athelstan's troubles were not over. And the challenge in 937 was to be the largest of all, because all three players this time managed to work together, which suggests a degree of planning. The revolt was led by Guthfrith's son Olaf, now leader of all the Norsemen of Eastern Ireland, and desperate to recover the kingdom with which his family had been deprived in York but he had willing supporters also in Constantine and Owen of Strathclyde. Their joint attack was launched into England before Athelstan could prepare, and their army was deep within English territory before Athelstan was able to meet it with a force drawn from Mercia and Wessex. We know about the battle because an old English poem survives called The Battle of Brunenburg. We have no idea where Brunenburg is, by the way, though of course there are plenty of theories. Now, for a bit of fun, go to YouTube and type in Brunenberg and you'll find someone reading the poem in Old English and it sounds great and it doesn't take long. Or just wait to the end of the podcast after my credits and I've recorded it there for you to boot. Alfred Tennyson also did a version of it which works really well. So, to your unbelieving horror, I'm going to read you poetry. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. Here are a few lines of the Tennyson version. Athelstan King, Lord among earls, bracelet bestower and baron of barons, he with his brother Edmund Atheling, gaining a lifelong glory in battle, 
slew with the sword edge there by Brunanburh, brake the shield wall, hewed the linden wood, hacked the battle shield. Many a carcass they left to be carrion, many a livid one, many a sallow skin, left for the white-tailed eagle to tear it, and left for the horny-nibbed raven to rend it, and gave to the garbaging warhawk to gorge it, and that grey beast, the wolf of the weald. The losses of the English were heavy, including the death of two Athelings, the sons of Alfred's youngest son, Athelward. But it was a conclusive victory. Olaf fled for the ships, Constantine for his kingdom. Famous as it is, Brunenberg was not a decisive battle. The struggle for Northumbria was to keep going for another 20 years. But there's lots that's interesting about it. We catch first sight of Edmund, the next king of England, then 15 years old. The emphasis on the English side is very much on the West Saxons and the mighty Mercians, which reflects that the traditional divisions are very much there. We're not yet talking about English. Probably, actually, the fact that Constantine was able to flee and remain as king of the Scots also says as much about Athelstan's claim to be king of all Britain as does Brunenberg's victory. Athelstan spent much more time actively developing foreign relationships. We saw how Offa had treated with Charlemagne and Athelwulf with the king of Franks. Athelstan's contacts, influence and reputation stretched even further and were more varied. Although kings like Alfred did have international contacts, with the marriage of his daughter, for example, the Danish invasions meant that he never had the kind of power in his homeland to give him significant influence abroad, and they essentially watched the continental scene from the outside. Athelstan was different. As king of a united England, and indeed maybe Britain, other international kings beat a path to his door. When Athelstan came to the throne, England had two significant relationships by marriage, to the Count of Flanders and to Charles the Simple, King of the West Franks, who had married Aed Gifu, the daughter of Edward. Charles ended his life held in captivity by his enemies and his son Louis the Pious was brought to England for his protection. In 936, Louis was restored to power in France and in the last year of his reign, Athelstan sent a fleet to ravage the coast of the continent in support of Louis. Rather ineffectually as it happens, but hey, it's the thought that counts. The role of protector brought Athelstan into contact with other players on the continent, such as Duke Hugh of the Franks, and Athelstan's various sisters and half-sisters were all married off in a succession of alliances to nearby European dynasties, Ead Gifu was married to Charles the Simple, as we said, Eadhild to Hugh the Great, Eadgif to the Emperor Otto the Great, and Elfgifu to Conrad of Burgundy. Now this is some list. These are the most powerful men in Europe. In addition, in 936, Athelstan helped his godson Alan of Brittany regain some of his lands there. He also established close diplomatic links with Harold Fairhair, King of Norway, with the result that Harold's son, Harkon, was raised in England and became known as Harkon Adelstein Fostry, which means Harkon fostered by Athelstan, which is a pleasantly informative name. I should be called David Plays Tennis on Thursday Night, maybe, something like that. Anyway, Harkon is going to be significant in the next episode, so make sure you remember all of that. Athelstan's foreign policy was not the defining aspect of his reign but his international standing was a consequence of the renewed wealth, success and stability of the English state. 
As the English state grew in size, so it grew in complexity. Edward, Athelstan and their successors were faced with the challenge of making sure that their government structures grew to meet the needs of the new state. One way of coping with this was the extension of the shire system from Wessex into the Mercia and the Danelaw. We really have no idea which of the 10th century kings were actually responsible for this since the process itself isn't documented in any way. But we do know that pretty much all of the shires that last all the way through to 1974 were established by the end of the 10th century and certainly by the end of the 11th century with the exception of the very northernmost. So the balance of probability is that the system was extended as the Wessex kings conquered the territories of the Danelaw which means Edward, Athelstan or Edmund. So I've gone for the middle one. The origin of the shire system is obscure, but the essence of the system is that the shire forms the basis of the administration of Wessex, at least by 850. The principle is that each shire has an alderman who is a government official responsible to the king. The alderman is responsible for the administration of justice and defence. We've covered this before, I think. Each shire was centred on a central town from which it drew his name. So, Wiltshire and Wilton, Somerset and Somerton, for example. Though there are exceptions, like Kent, Sussex and Surrey, which had once been kingdoms all on their own. So, in the 10th century, this system got extended to the Danelaw. In southwestern Mercia, i.e. the area largely free from Viking settlement, the Shire system cuts across the natural territories you might expect. For example, as you'll remember from some previous episode, Mercia was composed of a number of different peoples, such as the Huissa, the Magantsiter, the Tomatsiter, and so on. None of the territories that these people occupied correspond to the boundaries of the Shires. We're not sure why, but it would seem to indicate two things. Firstly, that the organisation was done by a king not terribly familiar with the Mercian tradition, and this would indicate Edward rather than Athelstan, in fact. Secondly, it may be that the organisation was mainly driven by the overriding priority of defence and military organisation during a period of war. In the Danelaw, meanwhile, the Shire system almost always corresponds to the Danish organisation. So, the five boroughs become shires, and the same with other territories controlled by specific Danish chiefs, such as Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, Huntingdon. We see the administrative system of hundreds also carrying across to the conquered territory. It's again likely that hundreds existed in Wessex by the time of Alfred, though there's no certainty about the system until Edgar and the mid-10th century. As we briefly discussed in the first Alfred episode, each hundred forms a unit of local government with the local court and meeting place. The hundred courts met outside and each had a chief official, the hundred man. The alderman would travel round the hundred courts as part of his official responsibilities. The hundreds themselves were composed of a number of hides. I will let you guess for the moment how many. The hide forms the basic unit of land measurement in Anglo-Saxon England and in principle a hide was the amount of land needed to support a churl and his family. This is both a rough and ready measurement, obviously, since the amount of land required for the task in arable-rich Norfolk is likely to be very different from the high fells of North Derbyshire. So we find that the size of hides varies from place to place. In principle, then, the hundred would be composed of... 
100 hides, and in some cases that is very nearly true. But it's by no means a hard and fast rule. And, just to make things complicated, the different kingdoms led to different terminologies. So, hundreds are not called hundreds in the Dane law, they're called wapentaks. And in Sussex, they're called rapes. But the basic structure is pretty much the same all over the country in terms of function, and the extension of the system helped the monarchy absorb a large territory relatively quickly and with relative efficiency. Whereas in Edward's reign we have pretty much no information about the operation of any king's council, with Athelstan we have a relative flood of land grants and charters that give a pretty good idea of the composition of his council. Over his reign, the quality of these charters improves in terms of uniformity, which gives an indication that Athelstan has well-trained clerks available to him, though there's no suggestion yet of an organised chancery, which in itself would be evidence of growing central government. But the main point is that each of these charters is signed by a very large number of witnesses. It tells us that Athelstan instituted a system of king's councils to help him govern, which seems entirely absent in Edward's reign. This king's council met pretty frequently, and they were held as Athelstan and his household travelled round the kingdom. His council included aldermen, bishops and thanes, and it included both Danes and Anglo-Saxons. The council is clearly not just a local gathering, it's a national event, a national thing, with people attending from far and indeed from wide. This is very different to previous practice. Someone like Alfred would have had charters witnessed by a very small group of men who happened to be in constant attendance on his household, a small group of churchmen or aldermen. The inclusion of Danes is also interesting in that it suggests that the Anglo-Saxons did not indulge in any attempt to replace Danes with Englishmen in the government of the Danelaw. Just like his father, Athelstan saw the issuing of law as a central part of the king's role, and during his reign, at least five and possibly six codes were issued. Through the codes, there is a tendency towards increasing severity that reflects the problems early societies have with crime, given the complete absence of any governmental organisation for its management. Athelstan actually apologises for the state of affairs with the phrase, I am sorry my peace is kept so badly. My advisers say, I have put up with it for too long. The execution of law depended heavily on the word of individuals and their oath, and the use of various types of ordeal to settle accusations. There's some lovely detail about ordeals. So, for example, in the boiling water experience, you had to go to the wrist for one accusation, up to the elbow for three. The sanctions against crime can be horrific. For example, the penalty for theft by a female slave was to be burned alive, which seems reasonably strict. Don't you think? Among these blood-curdling penalties and legal processes, a sign of leniency is unusual. And so it is even more impressive that Athelstan raised the age of criminal responsibility from 12 to 16. When you bear in mind that children of 10 are being executed for sheep-stealing in 19th century England, this does indeed look liberal for its time. Athelstan's codes also included provision about coinage and trade. 
they established that there would be one type of money throughout the kingdom and that this money would be controlled within a set number of mints located in designated towns. Any moneyers breaking the rules would lose a hand. Athelstan also legislated that trade should be concentrated into the burrs, a process that built the town as a centre of trade and probably helped accelerate their growth. An interesting side story to the law thing is a constitution that survived from a London peace guild. This is a private organisation set up by the bishops and reeves of London. A reeve, by the way, was the king's official. The startling thing about this, apart from the guild's quite remarkably complicated constitution, is the light it shines on the limitations of central government at this time, given that Athelstan had to rely on voluntary, private organisations to try and keep the peace. It's also why some of those penalties are so enormous, because they had to rely on deterrence rather than execution. Athelstan the Glorious died in 939 at the age of 45 after a reign, as I said, of 15 years, and just two years after his great victory at Brunenburg. He deserves to be recognised as one of our most successful monarchs, I would say. There are also no buts about it, really. Well, maybe just a couple. So he failed to have any children, which is careless, though fortunately he had a competent brother, so he got away with that responsibility of kingship. The other is that Brunenberg was by no means a decisive battle, as we said. Pretty much as soon as he was gone, the whole pack of cards came tumbling down and his brother had to do it all over again. But on every other level, he comes across as a thoughtful man, intellectually curious, showing that spot of sympathy in his law codes, which is really pretty exceptional. He was clearly an effective ruler who improved England's governance. And he was a successful war leader who expanded England's borders to its greatest extent yet. At the same time, he was noted for his piety and generous support of the church, which at the time was figured to be a jolly good thing. Athelstan was buried then at Malmesbury Abbey, which he had endowed, and his tomb is still there, though apparently his bones have long since disappeared. And indeed, it was William of Malmesbury who, in his chronicle, Deeds of the Kings of England, summed up the lad with the phrase, His years, though few, were full of glory. Next week, we'll cover his half-brother, Edmund I, the just, the magnificent, the deed-doer, so a man who earned himself a nickname or two. Edmund was the man who was to face the problem of Athelstan's pack of cards falling over and had to stack them up again, and was the next in line of impressively good, though lamentably short-lived, rulers. Now then, ladies and gentlemen, I am not sure how far you have realised this, but you have been listening to a remastering and rewriting of my original Anglo-Saxon series. The date on the episode is a lie. This was actually written in December 2016, but my remastering has come to an end. With Shedcast and all of that, I can't carry on redoing the Anglo-Saxons again. And anyway, I have righted the main wrongs I wanted to write by doing the Anglo-Saxon England series, which are largely about the migration period, to be honest. This episode, for example, was 80% old material. So, if you are going through chronologically for the first time, the next episode will actually take you back in time to something like 2012 when it was first written. You will spot the difference. The episodes are shorter, the mic is rubbish, I am slimmer and significantly better looking. If you are listening to the Anglo-Saxon podcast feed, this is the last episode that I'll put on that feed, so you will now need to switch back over to the History of England, episode 12, ironically, which picks up where this episode leaves off.
As always, thanks to all of you for listening, and good luck. And wait to the end of the music if you want to listen to the Battle of Brunenburg. Okay, for you extracurricular people, here is the Battle of Brunenburg in Old English. Ir Athelstan Kuning, Erledrichten, Berna Beakifa, and his brother Eak, Edmund Atheling, Elder Langnetir, Islogan at Sacha, Swear the Edgem, Umbe Brunenberg. Ordwell Clufan, Heon Hiatho Linde, Hamora Lafan, Afran Edwerdes, Swahimia Athelawas, from Kneo Magum, that he had campe oft with Lathra Yahuana, land Elgodon, Horde and Hamas. Hetend Krungon, Shelta Leoda, and Shipflotan, Faya Feolen, Feld Danende, Sejaswata, Sithen Sune up on Morgentid, Maratungol, glad over Grundas, Goddess Kandobert, H.S. Drichtness. Oth Sio Athle Yesheft, Sach to Settle. There lay Sejmani, Garamagated, Gumen Northerna over Shield Shoten, Schwitz Schittish Ech, Weary, Weasad. West Saxe a fourth, on Long Nedai, Erod Kistum, on Last Ledon, Latham Theodum, Heowen Herraflemen, Hindan Therla, Mechem Milen Sherpan. Mirchene Wirndan, Herdes Honplegen, Halathananum, there they mid anlafa over area bland on lides bosme land ye sokton, fire to ye felkte. Fife lagon on tham campstede, kinningas younge, swerdom a swevede, swilches self on a ek, erla anlafas, unrin herias, flotan an sheota. There ye flamed werth, nor mana bregu, neda ye bedded, to lides stefne, little werode. Cred kner on flot, kuding ut yawat on fel ne flod, ferk ye nerade, swilcheter ex efroda mid flame com, on his cuthe nord, Constantinus, har hildrink, reman ne dorfde, macha yamanen, hequas his maya shared, freunde ye filled on folkstede, beslagen at sacha, on his sunu for let, on walistoe, Wunden for Grunden, Jungne at Gutha. Gelpan ne thorfte bern blanden feax, Bilje slechtas, eld inwida. Ne anlaftum a, Mid herra herra lafam, Chrechen ne thorfton, That heo biadu werka, Betrad wordon, On kampsteda, Kumbol jernastas, Gar mitinge, Gymina jemotes, Wapan jerixles, Thas he on Walfelda with Edwardes Afran Plegodan. Yewitan him the Northmen, Nailed Knerum, Dreori Dartha Laf on Dingismere, over Deop Water, Dieflin Sechen, Eft Irland, Awish Mode. Swigshithaya Brother Bayanat Samne, Kinning on Atheling, Cuthis Sockton, West Saxon Land, Wees Hremia. 
let an him be hinden, rael Britian, salwig padan, thon a swert and hraven, hirned neben, and thon a haso and padan, ern aften wheat, ashes brukan, grydine guthavok, and that graia deor, wulf on welde. Ne werth walmara, on this eolanda, afreata fulches ye filled, before an thisum swerdes edgem. Thus they assegeat betch, elde uthwitan, sith an ersten hither, engle ern seaxe op becoman, over brad brimu, britene sochtan, wilanka we smithas, we allas overcoman, erlos arhuata, erd beyatan. Sorry about that slightly rubbish recording quality, but that's just the way it is. But anyway, if you enjoyed it, it was by a chap called Michael D.C. Drought. And you can find it on YouTube just by searching for the Battle of Brunenburg. Oakley Doakley, once again, have a great week and all that sort of thing. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.